Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to The Critic's podcast. In this week's podcast, the critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, speaks with the critic's sketch writer, Rob Hutton, about how political journalism has changed in the last two decades and the role that technology has played in its evolution. Rob Hutton, you've been 22 years as a political journalist. I think at the beginning of your time, perhaps political journalism had not changed in the previous 20 years, but we look in the succeeding 20 or more years and we see a total change. 22 years ago, when you joined the Mirror, was reporting politics quite old school? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I joined the Mirror as a general reporter, um, and, uh, yeah, I, I doubt it had changed massively in that century, to be honest. We still worked to overnight deadlines, um, we, uh, there was no Twitter, um, there, the internet did exist, but only barely, I mean, it existed in the sense of you'd sort of send emails, I'm not even sure that the Mirror had a news website when I joined it, um, so, uh, so yeah, no, it, it felt it felt recognisable. I mean, I, I one of my favourite books as a teenager was Scoop, um, which I still reread from time to time. And actually, it was broadly recognisable. You you had satellite phones, you had mobile phones. Things had changed. You weren't filing by telegram anymore, but you will still you were still filing um, copy over the phone. So um, when when did that stop? When, when, when that's a really so, so there's, a, there's an interesting debate about who was the last person to file a, a story by, to copy takers. But I was still filing to copy takers in the year 2000. You'd phone somebody up and uh, and dictate your story down the phone to to a fast typist, which actually was a brilliant discipline because you would hear your story out loud and you'd but you you would write it or type it out first and then you'd write it in your pad or, or would you be kind of um, uh, kind of doing it live and changing your mind as you speak so that's a really interesting question when you first start doing it you write it all out and then you read it down and then quite rapidly you move to a point where you're you're writing sort of notes or you write the intro and then you sort of you've got your points that you want to hit I mean, I remember when I was doing it for the Edinburgh Evening News in the mid-90s doing festival reviews, you'd, uh, you'd, say, you'd read your review and you'd say, four stars, and the woman at the other end of the phone would say, that sounded like a three-star review to me. And you yeah, okay, three stars. You know, and uh, so you... And actually what it taught you was even, even as you would speaking you'd hear yourself doing it and you'd think oh no that can be tighter because the great skill i've always thought in news reporting is is you're telling the story to somebody and that and the physical act of actually telling the story to somebody who is a disinterested copy taker who's been listening to this stuff all day 
it makes you quite aware that the, the next thing you were going to say is actually quite boring. We could probably skip that. I mean, the, the sort of the apocryphally, I'm not sure that anyone ever said this to me, although it is the title of my unwritten memoirs, is that you knew you were in trouble when the copy taker said, is there much more of this? That was that was the, the clue. You had to you had to you had to tell your story in a way that would interest the person at the other end of the phone, and it was amazing. And we've lost that. It's it's rather like novels have got longer because uh, people type them out on word processors rather than on typewriters. And when you typed on typewriters, if you decided the page was rubbish and you couldn't face typing it again, whereas when you're typing on a word processor, oh well, I'll just cut all of that and maybe I'll bring it back in or something. So sort of technology has led to books expanding, and it's sort of led in a funny way to journalism, I think, getting less pithy. When, uh, when I uh, first joined the Times newspaper I I 20 years ago, um, uh, one of my early tasks was to write about a, a commemoration of the uh, Dunkirk evacuation, which uh, I thought I had a thousand words, and I, I wrote a, a, I thought a, a historically balanced piece, which I was very proud of. I put in all sorts of dramatic details. And the next day, when I opened the Times, it was to find it had been cut to about 400 <laughs> and, and it was basically to say that there was a German attack, the British evacuated and some of them got home. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, but, but in a way, the dynamic between uh, those who feel they're literary figures and your, your uh, uh, a well-established author uh, uh, and and journalism. How remote are these two things? I mean, one wants to write for the ages, and yet the process of journalism is very instant. I I mean, I'm, I'm I've always been quite happy writing stories on the base. I've always quite liked the idea that there tomorrow is chip wrapping, which you know, in especially now nobody's buying newspapers at all. Um, they're clearly not, but. Uh, I was always happy with the idea that oh we're just writing it for for um, for the readers right now, and uh, when I was then writing books, um, that I, I viewed that as something completely different. And uh, although I think I took to it the disciplines that I had picked up in reporting, in the sense that when I did my last book, which is about MI5, I was very conscious that I couldn't report, I didn't want to write anything that I was, I couldn't show that I knew. And I, I, not everyone has that view, but if you'd spent, as I had at that point, I mean, I, I've, I spent 16 years at Bloomberg before I was in this job, you get quite imbued with the sense that you can't write it if you can't show it. You know, if you don't, if you're not sure about it, don't do it. Um, and, uh, and you, carry that with you I yes clearly clearly not all um, books are written to to that standard indeed not all <laughs> journalists have that standard but. I, I worry Rob that, that us journalists have got a little bit above ourselves by which I mean people read newspapers or in the old days people read newspapers to find out what was going on it, they didn't, you know, if you picked up a newspaper in the 1920s or 1930s, you didn't have Rob Hutton on the rights and wrongs of the Stresser Agreement or, or mm. Mussolini's invasion of Abyssinia. It was just reported that, that Italy had invaded Abyssinia. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, you were invited to draw your own conclusions from the reports of the atrocities that, that, that followed. Has there been a real sense in which literature has overtaken journalism in a way which 
has diminished journalism as a strict reporting of facts. I'm not sure about lit. I think I'm not sure about literature. There's always been a thing in in journalism that it would be a good thing to be a star, that it would be a good thing to be a name, rather like the sort of the the, uh, the Hollywood thing of being a name of uh, the name above the title. To be a to be a star reporter was a good thing. But I mean, to be a star reporter was a good thing on the Mirror when I joined twenty years ago. We had star reporters, and their bylines were bigger than my bylines, photo bylines we would call them. Oh. And what I think the acceleration there's been an acceleration, for want of a better word. We now go through. Four news cycles a day. You know, the sort of there's the. I, I noticed it this morning. I sort of felt like I had covered yesterday in Parliament. And when I when I looked at the news this morning, I discovered that overnight number ten had briefed another line out. Now, it, it, in my previous job, I would have had that. And there you are. There's another news cycle that took place between half past five. I think the Prime Minister stopped speaking last night, and half past ten. They managed to squeeze another whole story in about about testing, and that's quite normal. Now we would have now we have a sort of a an overnight news cycle, and then between seven and nine a.m. there's another little news cycle based on the morning broadcast round by a minister going around the studios, and then by about one o'clock there's been another news cycle based on the morning lobby briefing and then there's a sort of there's an afternoon one based on something happening in parliament and then there'll be a an o- then there'll be the overnight briefing so how many is that that's four or something uh, there's a lack of mystery in this though isn't it but, yeah which i mean the more government makes itself available or at least by putting out its line the, the the less we're really interested in anything it has to say, and the less a sense of moment it is when, when, when government, whether from a minister or from a spokesperson, actually says anything. Yeah, I think, I mean, even on, even on Saturday, so last Saturday we had this Saturday morning, the Times and the Mail, I think, had reported that the, that the government was going to introduce a, another lockdown. Um, there was a bit of a panic across the course of the morning and then sort of on Saturday afternoon we learned there was going to be a press conference and then that was delayed. But by the time the press conference started, which I think was about quarter to seven, we knew everything that the Prime Minister was going to say because that had been briefed out to the broadcasters. So so the the story, in a weird way, for for me watching it at, at at 7pm, watching Prime Minister at 7pm, was not what, what he was saying, because I knew, I had known by that stage for two hours what he, what the broad contents of the, the lockdown would be, and I mean, indeed there had been a long, long briefing, I think, for reporters that afternoon, so, so, so what are you, as you say, you know, sort of, you're no longer waiting for the Prime Minister to announce something about the only time now where we are genuinely sort of where we genuinely get news from the mouth of the politician is in the budget which is the one thing and even then a lot of it's been briefed beforehand i mean that's the one thing i can think of where you have my former colleagues at at bloomberg would be literally sitting there sending headlines as the chancellor speaks because there are things that the chancellor is saying that that are not public, that are not known until he says them. I mean, well, that... the, for, for the likes of Bloomberg, the, the Chancellor's comments are, uh, are gold. Um, but for many of them, 
members of the cabinet really this is the the you know the come and go of normal day, daily politics I, I wonder if you went back to the 1930s 1920s where in essence if politicians had something to say they said it in parliament first mm. they, they, they they didn't talk to the the equivalents of of Bloomberg uh, if there were equivalents uh, um, and, and so these things were not mm -hmm. were not dealt then um, has that fundamentally changed the way in which there's a relationship, a chumminess between journalists and politicians who they, they want to leak things and actually these things should be in, in, in released to Parliament first and then it, it's journalists' role to, to report Parliament? Yeah, we're not in that world anymore. I mean, we're not, we're just not in that world anymore. We had... Um, even, you know, even the Prime Minister's words to Parliament yesterday were briefed overnight in advance. Uh, some of them, I think... So we, we go through this sort of, this funny kind of thing where, I, I mean, the four cycles I talked about earlier, one of them is the Prime Minister will say, one of them is the Prime Minister is saying, and one of them is the Prime Minister has said, and then we move on to, you know, sort of to the next thing and almost you've got by the time the prime minister is speaking you've already moved on to the next story there's a great desire to to move the story on as um uh, news editors uh, up and down the country will be saying to reporters tomorrow morning how are we going to move the story on um and it's very difficult in those circumstances to say well let's, let's just why don't, why, don't, why don't we just let the story why don't we just report the story that we have this looks mm. perfectly good um I think because, partly because, in the household in which I was growing up, the Times would be pushed through our letterbox at seven o'clock in the morning, um, and uh, my father would read it over his breakfast, and and there's a whole that that was when he would learn a whole load of things, and then he would go to work, and he'd come home in the evening, and he'd watch the nine o'clock news, and uh, he'd learn some other things. And uh, and then he, his next news cycle was the Times the next morning. And, and in between those things, he was getting on with his job. And, and now, even if you're not listening to broadcasts, even if you're not watching 24-hour news, you, it's very, very hard to escape this, as I say, this just this sort of this acceleration well, the, the, of reporting. This is the, the great difficulty, isn't it, in, in that it's a push-pull do we worry about the nature of politics and politicians because they're constantly responding to 24-hour news and coming out with glib and perhaps un unconsidered uh, um, statements? Or is there... We don't need to blame journalists for this. We just have to accept that it's the, the, the state of the market, that, that there is a market for 24-hour news and it's journalists' role to be constantly probing. I, I do wonder whether actually something has been lost and we, we should be more respectful of our legislators and, and just say that some of them need time to come to a conclusion and by constantly pressing on them we, we, we are actually as journalists just being Twitter. Yeah, no, no, and I, I think that's true. I, and I, there are times when you're sort of phoning people up and you think, well, to, to ask them what they think of a document, you think, well, I mean, really this document's only been out for ten minutes and... You know, I'm not sure the person I'm talking to is a terribly fast reader, and probably they haven't read it, and, you know, and maybe they would never have read it. Certainly some of the MPs I know that that's true of, but you're not giving them a chance to think, and you're not giving them a chance to do their job, and 
and you almost respect the one. You do respect the ones who who, who say, "Do you know what? I haven't read it." Do do prime ministers or chancellors or foreign secretaries have a chance to think in the modern twenty four hour news media? Well, I think they can in the sense that certainly chancellors. I mean, it, 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 it's it's slightly the question of how how much you can submerge your submarine. I think it's difficult, it's more difficult for Prime Ministers because there is an expectation that the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister's spokesman, not the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister's spokesman will have a view on, on any subject under the sun. And you, you, you will have been to lobby briefings where the Prime Minister's spokesman turns up with a thick binder and uh, reporters sort of will throw, throw, the, throw the ball on whatever question and the spokesman will sort of feel down his tabs and will duly turn to Coronation Street or uh, Iran or the bond market or whatever it is you're asking about and will offer a view. And actually, sometimes, to be fair to <coughs> the Prime Minister's spokesman, the answer will be, I have not had a chance to ask the Prime Minister what he thinks about Corrie or whatever. Um, Although, equally, then the answer will be, well, look, can we get a line for this afternoon? But this is um, the fault of journalism. Yeah. It, it is of no moment that the Prime Minister, whoever he or she may be, has a line on Corrie. It is perhaps a moment that the Prime Minister has a sense of whether, what, what the cost of lockdown will be, which we've just discovered mm. uh, today that there's been no uh, impact assessment for. Um, I, I, I worry that, that you, those of us, you and me included, in, in, in the media are, are really holding, uh, holding politicians to unreasonable standards. So there's a weird thing, and I've seen it now a number of times, where a, a, government, a government in waiting will say, oh no, we're not going to play this game. You know, David Cameron had a lovely line about it. You know, the sort of the, the, the government as, as part of I can't remember something like the government as, as part of a sort of demented part of the entertainment industry. You know, and and I remember hearing him say that in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, thinking, yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. You know, that sort of the, the government felt that it had to sort of constantly be dancing to this tune, and then you get into government, and the ability to say, do you know what, we're still thinking about what we think about this come back to us next week is it's it's very hard to hold that line and it's very hard to hold that line because partly because then you you sort of create a vacuum where somebody else who has reached a conclusion whether a good one or not uh, offers it and it's also it's partly difficult to hold that line because not all politicians are tremendously thoughtful people Many of them won't come to better thoughts if given a week than they would if you ask them, you know, what they think in, 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 in two minutes. I mean, we have had, you know, the, the subject of the national debate for the last four years has been how international trade works. How many members of parliament, members of parliament who have been members of parliament for four years, really understand the minutiae of international trade. The most important thing that any of them really can understand at the moment, ma many of them cannot be bothered to do the reading, and giving them more time to not do the reading will not get you better answers. Uh, and I think there's, a, there's a, an extent to which that's true even within government, actually. So although, yes, there has been a great acceleration, yes, that is... I mean, there's a way in which that's the fault of journalists. That's a way in which, just you know, I mean, I would, 
I think, I don't know many journalists who would not cheerfully go back to only filing once a day, those glory days, rather than sort of having to have a... a I mean, you know, we'd, we'd say the budget at Bloomberg, we would have to have a story on the budget running more or less as the Chancellor sat down, and a proper story on the budget. Mm. You know, that's a... But that's just the world that we live in. Uh, so we're sort of... That's what, that's what readers demand, and even... I mean, I'm sort of... Conscious, we, you know, we're now. I'm now working for what's supposed to be a sort of a slower news outfit, but we sort of want the sketch to run on the day that the thing happens. You work for the Mirror, you work for Bloomberg. You're now a sketch writer for the Critic. What is the difference in writing for a tabloid newspaper, writing for a financial-minded news agency, and, and, and writing for? a magazine with a political analysis? Writing for The Mirror, we ran stories over 400 words, but we didn't run a lot of stories over 400 words. So you were writing extremely tight copy. I mean, as I say, I was writing for The Mirror in an age when it barely had a website. And you could go... I mean, I remember I, did, I covered a plane crash... Um, quite a nasty one and I had the day to go and cover the plane crash and then I went back to the office and wrote the story that was in 1999 I just actually can't imagine that I, how many iterations of the story I, did, I think I got the phone call at about 11 o'clock and I think I started writing copy at about half past four or something, and maybe I filed that by phone, I can't remember. But how many iterations of the story would I have written by half past four these days? I mean, so many. Let me give, give you an analogy from the early t 2000s, where before really the 24-hour news cycle became um, absolutely the, the run of the day. Um, Concord crashed yeah, in, I remember I think, that. 2000. Yeah. I, I was a Times leader writer at the time. Yeah. And unfortunately, Concord crashed in the early evening. Bad timing for a Times leader writer who'd already written about it. I think it was late afternoon. I'd already found my piece about the coup in Fiji. Uh, uh, and um, it, it was unfortunate timing. Now, but nevertheless, the Times cleared space and wrote instant commentary on the Concord crash, mm. what, it, what it meant for Concord, what it meant for the air industry generally, what it meant for the, the wider travel industry. Um, a colleague of mine who, who was working at uh, a leading German newspaper at the same time, um, and sadly most of those who were killed on that Concord crash were, mm. were German, um, you, the, the news came through at the same time, uh, but they decided not to cover it because they were all going home that evening, uh, and it, it would have to wait for another day. Wow. Now, uh, <laughs> this keeps in mind that the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the fact that the Times didn't cover the Hiroshima um, uh, uh, attack in 1945 because they, they needed 45... 45 hours to think about <laughs> what it really meant. Uh, um, and in some ways, you know, why, why shouldn't they take time to think mm. about such a momentous event uh, before commenting instantly? Are we all commenting instantly because we have to? And actually, we make ourselves journalists but not historians in doing so. So I... I mean, I... 
slightly unusual background for journalists. I was a computer scientist at university, and the significance of that is that I was a, one of the few people in the mid-90s who was on the internet at his desk all day long. I mean, even in newspapers, people weren't. And I was because I was in a computer science lab. And I remember in sort of 95, 96, 97, my personal appetite for news at that point and for political news was limitless. And I was sat there sort of on what news websites there were. Um, just refreshing. There was, there was. I, I was doing my, my um, uh, thesis during the uh, ninety-seven election, and my appetite for political news in the ninety-seven election was far beyond anything that you know, sort of, the Press Association and the Guardian, which I think were basically the two websites. I think the Times had a website as well that you could access and could supply. I sort of type a bit of code and then come back and see whether anything has anything happened in the last half hour. So in a strange way, I feel like that that I, I, I was in nineteen ninety seven where everyone else is now that you sort of you people just want lots and lots and lots and lots of news and analysis and the problem is that very often in the first hour after something happens there isn't very much news and analysis because you don't know what's happened and you know you sort of even 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 things that have happened on camera I think about sort of 9-11 about the Concorde crash which which was captured on camera I think you're in those early hours there isn't very much very often that you can say and very much of what you will say is wrong I mean I, I, I having been sort of working in in the mirror in in during 9-11 and one of the things I'm keenly aware of is that almost <laughs> an awful lot of the stuff that we reported in the first 24 hours, and this is not a judgment on anyone, it was, was incorrect. I think we, got, we, we massively overestimated death toll, because how the hell do you know? Who knows how many people were in those towers? Nobody, that's, a, that's, not a, that's not a known fact on the 11th of September. You know roughly how many people worked there on an average day, but who was actually there in that moment? Um... Uh, and so this the, but but the market the appetite is limitless and and sort of and on Twitter and on sort of on live blogs and all of these things there's a there's a desperate desire to to have stuff um, quite reasonably I sort of every, everyone wants to know everything all at once and I mean having done a few breaking news events having sadly done a few terrorist attacks in the last five years, one of the things you're acutely conscious of is it would be better if everyone sort of left it and waited until tomorrow and, and then we'd know how many people had been killed. You know, I, I, can't, I can't tell you now and I won't be able to tell you in one minute and, and I won't be able to tell you in two minutes and I won't be able to tell you in three minutes and so please maybe you should stop refreshing but that doesn't really work for for readers. And uh, Robert, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about you is you, you are a journalist, but also a historian. So you've written, for example, about Agent Jack, uh, um, a Cornish bank clerk who was an agent provocateur to entice 
uh, fascist-minded British people to um, spill their beans about what they were doing to help the Third Reich during the Second World War. Do you find that the role of the historian is different to the role of the journalist? The historian has huge advantage. Hindsight, access to archives that journalists don't have. How has it shaped your, your ability as a journalist to think, I have instant information, but is it accurate? I think the thing that I realised doing that was, again, actually, I mean, something I slightly knew, which was how uncertain information is. And you read, you're reading files that are people who are writing contemporaneously, you're reading people's diaries that they're writing contemporaneously, and you're... You're, you're sitting there thinking, well, I know at 70 years' distance, actually, you're wrong about this. You don't need to worry about this, or you do need to worry about that. And I can understand that from where you're sitting, uh, actually round the corner from here, um, in St. James's, in MI5 headquarters, it then was, this thing here looks like a tremendous problem, um, but actually, at a distance of 70 years... Nobody's, nobody is going to think that that was the, big, the biggest problem facing the government. You know, whether it's, whether it's British fascists or whether it's um, uh, Italian uh, waiters. Huge worry in, in mid-1940 about all the Italians in Britain um, and whose side they were on and, and what should be done with them, and which at our distance looks absolutely ridiculous. But you can see that in mid-1940, having just declared war on Italy, that that was a... It's not a stupid thing to worry about. Um, so that, I think, made me sympathetic to people wrestling with problems with uncertain information, with incomplete information. I mean, the great frustration, the great frustration as a historian is you don't have access to the people, so you only have what they wrote down. With that, Agent Jack in particular, the issue was that it was a very it was a even even for an MI5 operation, it was a secret operation, it was a secret within MI5, and so very very few people had written anything down about it, and you were sort of constantly sort of searching for oblique references to this operation, trying to work out what people were talking about, and MI5 was sufficiently embarrassed about it that after the war there was a fairly comprehensive destruction of most of the records relating to it which made it made it more difficult and, and none of the people involved in it ever talked about it which made it more difficult whereas with journalism very often you you sort of it's not difficult to get people to talk although it's sometimes quite difficult to get the people who know what's going on to talk it's quite easy to get people who don't know what's going on to talk i'm always quite sympathetic to people in government i may not come across in sketches but i am actually quite sympathetic to to people who are wrestling with difficult problems i i, I we're writing this in an age of COVID. I am very sympathetic to the government wrestling with the enormous impossible challenges that they have to face with, you know, sort of locking down versus... Well, well let, let's come to your yeah. career as, as a sketch writer for The Critic. Um, what are your inspirations? Is it novels, comic novels, the, the great British history of satire, um, which... Let's be honest, Parliament lends itself to <laughs> majestically. Or, 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 are, are you 
are you drawing on the great speeches of Fox and Burke and Disraeli and Gladstone? Well, I'm, 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 a, what, what, what's, I'm, what's your motivation? I'm a computer scientist. I'm not a historian, so I, I'm sadly lacking in that kind of context. I grew up reading the Times, where Miles Kington had a daily column. I mean, a daily column, which was always funny. And when I was about 13, he switched to The Independent, which I think had then just launched, and I started buying The Independent on the way to school simply to read Miles Kington's column. And then I would bring it home and give it to my mum. Uh, and that was our sort of, our shared pleasure was, uh, was Miles Kington. In my late teens, I, as teenagers do, started reading The Guardian, where at that stage Simon Hoggart was the columnist and... Um, Simon Hoggart's sketch was the first thing I would read every day. Um, and, uh, and I, I mean, uh, you know, Simon absolutely was, for me, the, the model. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I sort of, I wrote amateur sketches for my student newspaper at Edinburgh and, uh, and I knew, we all knew that was who we wanted to be, or I knew that was who I wanted to be. And I mean, when I moved here and started working for Bloomberg and found myself in the Bloomberg shares an office with The Guardian in the weird way that the press gallery works. And so I found myself sharing an office with Simon, which was, for me, was the absolute, just the absolute highlight of my career. And I mean, I never obviously told him how much that meant to me, but uh, sitting there and... and Actually, the, the, the dirty secret of, of sketch writers, I, I feel I can reveal, is that you're absolutely desperate for anyone to give you jokes. So, so you, would, you would sit there and, and you would sort of, something would be happening and you'd say something and Simon would say, oh, I'll have that. And think, yes, yes. You know. <laughs> Simon carried on writing. You know, we, sort of, we all knew that, that he was ill and, and he didn't want to talk about it, so we didn't talk about it, which is very odd. So I never talked, I never talked to him about what he meant to me. His sketches of the latter years of the major government and the early years of the Blair government, for me, were that was the inspiration, completely. Um, and that combined with Miles Kington. Miles Kington mainly didn't do politics, but every now and then he would do sort of the Thatcher government as Macbeth, or. Um, just flights of fancy, and and that was the other thing. I just loved. So the the Miles Kington thing that has most stayed with me is um, he sort of observed one day that that women liked romance and men liked war novels, and the solution to this was a publishing house that would write romantic war novels, and it would be called Mills and Bang, and uh, and then he would write little praises of these books of love on the love in the trenches and this kind of thing, uh, and. Those those have stayed with me for thirty years, um, and and those are the those are the things that I would I would love to write something as good as Mills and Bang. Well, Rob Hutton, um, sketch writer for the Critic, on the prospect of Mills and Bang, we must leave it. If you've enjoyed listening to the Critic podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.